Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. If I haven't met you, my name's Ryan, and uh, it's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. As you heard a moment ago, we are uh, taking a look at Mark chapter 12 as we continue studying the gospel of of Mark. Uh, Before we start, I just want to add my own voice to say that uh, I'm excited for next weekend with John Dixon here for our missions conference. Uh, I really feel like he's going to be able to speak to the need of the hour for many of us as he has listened really carefully to the questions that many of us are asking and many people are asking in our culture. And then he, he has crafted a thoroughly biblical and, uh, and winsome answers to those questions. Uh, and so I'd really encourage you, if you can make space in your weekend to come and to join us on Saturday, and if you can't, to be here on Sunday and maybe bring a friend along with you Sunday morning and or Sunday night. Um, he, is, uh, he is committed to sending Christians out into the world who, uh, who have a real heart for people, who, uh, who live out what, uh, what Terrence reminded us a moment ago, that, that the Lord calls us to be salt and light wherever he calls us to go. Uh, by the way, uh, that's why I do this, okay? Uh, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not sure there's much danger in that, actually. But uh, uh, we gather here uh, so that we might be shaped by the gospel, so that we might be sent by the Holy Spirit, period. That's why we do this. Uh, It's why we study the gospel of Mark. It's to learn what it means to follow Jesus in our time for the sake of our generation, so that we might not only answer questions, but we might live out those answers with embodied love. Wherever the Lord's calling you to go this week, that is my consistent prayer for you, and I hope your prayer for me as we open God's word, that we'd be about that work. And uh, one of the questions that, I don't know that John's gonna address this question or not next week, but it's probably a question you've heard before, or at least, sorry, an objection to Christianity that, uh, that you hear often, and that is uh, that the church is full of hypocrites. And so if the church is full of hi- hypocrites, I don't want anything to do with the church. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, maybe you've said that before. Maybe you came into this place with that suspicion lodged deep in your heart. And there may be really good reasons that that suspicion is lodged in your heart because you've been hurt by the church because you've seen Christians who say one thing and do another. And if that's been your experience in this church or any church, uh, I wanna say I'm sorry. Uh, In our passage that we're looking at this morning, I hope you already heard that Jesus is very quick to call out hypocrisy. Okay, but if that's you and that's your objection, that means two things. Uh, It means first of all, you're not original in your critique. Jesus made this critique a long time ago. But also, this is not the end of the discussion. You see, where this objection often leads is into the cul-de-sac of cynicism. So that we get to this place where we say, the church is full of hypocrites because we've met a few, and then that totalizes our impression of everything Jesus has to say anywhere. But if you notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't descend into cynicism or let you do that either, because in addition to criticizing hypocrisy, he also gives us hope for a beautiful life of integrity. 
And he sees it in the most unlikely of all places. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is how it's actually the gospel of Jesus that liberates us to live a beautiful life of integrity. He liberates us. He frees us to live a beautiful life of integrity. And in order to understand that, we need to see how Jesus observes two things. First of all, he says, beware hypocrisy. He gives us a clear warning against hypocrisy, but then he also says, behold integrity. And we need to look at both in order for us to understand what Jesus has for us this morning. As we open God's word together, let me pray for us. Father, uh, I thank you for uh, this passage and the beauty of this passage and also the way in which you see through us, not just seeing us, but seeing through us to the motivations of our hearts. And would you give us the courage through the Holy Spirit to be honest, to be honest with you this morning as you speak the truth to us in love. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna look at two things this morning. We're considering how Jesus liberates us to live a life of integrity. Uh, And so we need to observe what Jesus observes in this passage. First of all, he observes the scribes and he says, beware hypocrisy. Or maybe we should say, beware hypocrisy. Uh, And then also, behold integrity. So that we might behold integrity. Beware hypocrisy, behold integrity. The hypocrisy he sees, he sees in the scribes. We talked about the scribes last week because we met, we met a scribe last week, which reminds us, by the way, that not all the scribes were hypocrites because the fellow we met last week, earlier in this chapter, is a genuine seeker of truth. He comes to Jesus with a genuine question and he gives a, gives a good answer when he has the opportunity. And so uh, it wasn't all the scribes who fit this, this description, but a few fit the description of a hypocrite. Why is that? because they put on an outward face of being pious and religious and having their lives all about God. But when Jesus sees through them, he sees a heart that is rotten. He sees motivations that have been corrupted. And there are two motivations that we see in view here. First of all, it's the motivation of craving admiration and seeking honor. So Jesus tells us the scribes walk through the marketplace with their long robes on. Do you see that in verse 38? Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. These were long uh, white linen robes that went to the ground and uh, they, were the, they were the scribal uniform. So think of it like academic regalia, which is entirely appropriate in certain settings, but in other settings you're like, why are you wearing that? Why are you going through, you know, the drive-through at Chick-fil-A with the long robes and the stripes and the stole and the funny hat? Why are you doing that? Uh, well, you typically don't see that, but the scribes would dress like this because it was a sign that they had been set apart to be experts in the law, and they were. They were highly educated, uh, highly pious and religious. And this meant that whenever they walked through the marketplace, it was expected that people would stand up and greet them with a title of respect, like rabbi, father. And that's not a problem. In and of itself, that's not a problem. Some of you wear a uniform to work. Some of you are given 
titles of respect. People stand up in the room, maybe when you walk into the room, or at least pay attention when you open your mouth, not only because of who you are, but because of your title, let's be honest, because of the office you sit in. It, it garners a certain level of respect and admiration. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem, Jesus says, is they like it. They do a couple extra laps around the marketplace to get their fix of admiration. And not only that, Jesus says that they seek places of honor. They have the best seats in the synagogue. You know where the best seat in the synagogue was? Think the opposite of the best seat in the Presbyterian church. Okay? The best seats in the Presbyterian church are back there. I see y'all. I can see you. The best seats in the synagogue, those are right up front. Uh, And not only right up front, you were facing the congregation. That's where the scribes sat. Why do you think they sat there? Hmm. So they could be seen and so they could see. And not only did they have the best seats in the, con- in, the, in the congregation, they had the best seats at the feasts. They were at the head table. They were sitting next to mom, to dad, to the CEO, to the speaker. You know when you walk into a banquet and you go to that table with all the names and the cards, you're like, I wonder what table I'm sitting at at this one. And you pull it out, you're like, low number, low number, 78. All right, I am sitting in the back. And then from table 78, you're looking out, you're like, look at all those really important people up there. They got those seats. And the problem wasn't that they had those seats or they had the corner office or they were respected in the, in the congregation. The problem was that they liked them too much. You see, before we jump on the bandwagon and say, yeah, those hypocrites, let's just recognize there was something going on inside of them that goes on inside of all of us. When was the last time you got home from work, sat down in the chair, threw your head back, and said out loud, you know what, I am tired of all this admiration I'm getting at work, all this respect, all this recognition. I am just, I've had it up to here. I'm done. You've never said that. Because you have a heart like mine, and we have hearts that crave approval. And and, and Jesus isn't saying approval's bad, you know, feign humility every time anyone gives you a compliment. No, but what he's saying is be careful You don't like it so much that you begin to need it, to feel like you're worth anything. I was thinking about this. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who has had a career in the military. He's getting ready to retire in the next few years. And so we were having lunch and I was saying, well, what's next for you? And his comment was, um, you know, Ryan, the issue isn't so much What's next? Uh, The challenge is, who am I going to be without this uniform? And this is a humble guy. This is a guy who, who has his head on straight. His heart's in the right place, but he recognizes what all of us recognize, that what we do and who we are just starts getting entangled after a while, and the places we get the most affirmation are the places we often find the most meaning in life. 
And what happens when you take off that uniform? I was reading an article about uh, Andrew Luck, who was uh, number one uh, draft pick for the NFL for the, for the Colts many years ago, several years ago. Um, top quarterback coming out of college, coming out of Stanford, highly touted, uh, amazing quarterback. Until he got hurt, he hurt his throwing shoulder. You might remember he had surgery on his shoulder in the offseason. Um, this article was fascinating because it was talking about what was going on behind the scenes and what was going on inside of him when he was going through this transition of, of trying to rehab, but the rehab wasn't working really well. And the press was on him about like, when are you returning? When are you returning? And people were covering for him. But, but really what was going on behind the scenes was this identity crisis because he was not getting better. His arm was not working right. And they this article tells the story of meeting with a trainer, hoping that this would take care of the pain. He's, he's there throwing the ball and the pain is still there. And he's so frustrated that it's not getting better. He finally, uh, the trainer says to him, look, if it's not working, it's not working. We'll just take a break. And Andrew Luck says, no, I need to throw. I need to throw. And the trainer stops and goes, Andrew, you matter. And when you can't throw, you matter. I think the scribes needed a trainer like that. You know, they needed someone just to walk alongside of them and say to them, you know, when the days are gone, when you're not wearing that robe anymore and people aren't greeting you anymore with the titles of respect and you don't have the place of influence you have right now, even then you still matter. And maybe this morning you need to hear Jesus say to you, the place you find the greatest sense of significance and meaning cannot be the place where you find the most admiration of people. It's, it's got to be somewhere else. And you know what? It can be somewhere else. You can find this wellspring of love and acceptance and significance outside of those very places our hearts crave. And look, uh, this just might sound like Ryan's pep talk, self-esteem self -esteem talk. It, it, it's not that because listen to what Jesus also says about this. He says, when we allow our hearts to be too captivated and seduced and intoxicated by the approval of others, bad things start to develop in our lives. Like when there is a, a fragmentation between who we are and who we are, there's, there, there are bad things that start to happen. Look at what happens in the life of the scribes. We're told in verse 40, they devour widows' homes and for a pretense make long prayers. We, we don't know exactly what was going on. There are various ideas of what they might have been doing. Obviously, they're somehow taking advantage financially of the most vulnerable in their congregations. Most likely what's happening is they didn't take a salary. They depended on the generosity of others. And in many cases, they would depend on the generosity of those who really didn't have that much to give, like widows. And, uh, and rather than being good stewards of that, they just spent it on themselves because they loved money. In other words, they were using their long, pretentious prayers to impress people. They were hawking their religious wares for their personal gain. You see, when 
who we are out here begins to get separated from who we are in here. As that distance grows, we begin to justify all kinds of ways to take advantage of people. So what does Jesus say? He says, beware. But he also gives us an example to behold. A picture of integrity. Uh, I love the fact uh, that in verse 41, we find Jesus sitting uh, on the other side of the treasury and watching people put money in the offering plate or the offering box. So he's sitting uh, in a courtyard across from the temple wall where the offering boxes were or receptacles. And, and, and it's, I love the idea that Jesus is spending time people watching. Just watching people. Watching this, the sea of humanity go back and forth. And he notices... Yeah, there's some rich people bringing their offerings into the box and maybe they're weighed down a little bit by what they're bringing. Maybe when they put the money in, it, you know, it sounds like when you use the coin machine at Walmart, it's like two minutes. And people around are looking, wow, see how much that guy's giving, wow. But he's not impressed by that, is he? That's not really what catches his eye. What catches his eye is this woman who otherwise would be invisible in this society, right? Because widows didn't have much social standing. They were kind of an object of compassion. You felt sorry for them maybe. You helped them financially. But, you know, they didn't stand out in the crowd. But he watches her walk along slowly and take out two copper coins, which Mark tells us just to translate for us. That was about a penny. It's actually less than a penny in today's dollars two coins and she drops it in and he says hold on a second gathers his disciples and says to them truly I say to you this is verse 43 this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box they're watching the same scene they're not coming to that conclusion at all how could Jesus say this he goes on verse 44 for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty, for she has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Here's the difference, as one person has put it. Everyone else was giving what they would never miss. She was giving everything she had. You see, a life of integrity is a life that is sacrificial. We just spent the last 40 minutes or so singing about the grace of God, how through Christ, God has given us himself. Jesus has given us his life on the cross. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us eternal life. He's given us hope even in the face of death. And so if, if that's true, if that's our outward public profession, then it ought to be that our inward posture is one of sacrificial giving. Do you see the connection there? In integrity, who we say God is and what he's done for us matches how we live. And if all we do is give what we're never gonna miss, it raises some questions about what we really believe. Uh, Not only is this a sacrificial gift, this is also a secret gift. 
And this is the other amazing thing about what's happening. As Jesus watches her, she has no idea that Jesus is watching her, has no idea that Jesus' eyes are on her, and yet she gives, not because she's going immediately to the post-giving press conference. Right? No one's going to put a microphone in her face. That was amazing, really incredible. How'd that feel? I got to get a lot of credit to everybody. You know, no, it wasn't that. There was no applause. No one was blowing trumpets as she walked by. She wasn't going to find her name in the alumni magazine at the platinum giver level. None of that. None of that. The only reason she gave was out of love for God. And she gave everything. Notice what Jesus says. She had two copper coins and she didn't keep one for herself. She didn't tithe 50%. She gave it all in secret with no expectation that anyone would pat her on the back for it. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not endorsing bankrupting yourself to give to the work of the church. That's not the next sentence I'm going to say. Just in case you were wondering, let's just get that out of the way. Uh, In the same way that when Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell everything and give to the poor, that was not a universal command. Uh, But in both of those cases, Jesus is challenging us at the heart level. He's asking you a question. When it comes to your treasure and your time and your talent, are you just giving what you'll never miss? Or are you giving sacrificially? Because that's a question of integrity if you profess Christ. And likewise, are you giving so that others will notice? Or is it enough that God sees what you do? It's a brilliant question. I, I know often integrity is defined as doing the right thing when no one is looking, but it's more than that, right? It's more than just external behavior modification. Integrity, as one person has said, is not sin management. Integrity is coherence of heart. It's wholeness. And part of wholeness means giving sacrificially and delighting in secret obedience, if I can put it that way. Jesus is also not outlawing public acts of righteousness. So this is not the time to feign humility when someone gives you a compliment, you go, oh, no, 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 it's okay just to say, thank you so much, I appreciate that. But Jesus is probing our hearts. He's probing our hearts by asking us a question. Is it enough, stay at home, mom or dad, for you to know that all the thankless work you do for your kids is seen by God and no one else? Is it enough when you stay late at the office, covering for your boss, covering for your colleague, and no one says anything? Is it enough that God sees you? Is it enough when you are facing temptation in secret and privately and you could sin and no one would know, is it enough that God sees your courageous act of obedience? Is it enough? And you see, I would submit to you, it will never be enough until you see Jesus. 
Because the heart of the problem here is not necessarily the scribe's behavior. It's really where they go wrong with belief. This is why Jesus begins in verse 35 with a little Bible study from the book of Psalms. He's pointing out to them, he's saying, look, you're looking for a certain kind of Messiah, but the true Messiah, the true Savior is standing right in front of you and you cannot see me. You see, they were looking for a Messiah like King David who would come conquering by might and conquering by force and take the throne by force. But Jesus came not to conquer, but to be conquered. Not to take the throne, but to leave his heavenly throne that he might take the lowest place. The scribes love the highest place, the place of honor. Jesus sought the lowest place from the very beginning, born in a cattle stall, born in the middle of nowhere, born to poor parents growing up in backwater nowheresville. The scribes loved to hear people telling them how great they were. Jesus was willing to receive the insults and curses and false accusations of his own people, the very people he came to save. And the widow, the widow, as noble as it is that she gave all that she had, these two copper coins, how much more Jesus gave us all he had. He gave us his life so that he might adopt you into his family. You see, until we see Jesus and what he's done for us, we won't really know what it, how invigorating and liberating it is to be seen by our heavenly father. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And why is it that we can live with this sort of liberated, joyful obedience because, Jesus says, your heavenly Father sees you. Your heavenly Father sees you. And you will never know the kind of acceptance and significance and worth and meaning that is given to you outside of this reconciled relationship that Jesus brings into our life, this adopted identity as one of the Heavenly Father's children. This is why this morning we can celebrate this poor widow. No one else saw her, no one else noticed her, no one else applauded her. We can celebrate her as this model of beautiful integrity, what it looks like to live under the loving gaze of Jesus. So that we might give so we might live for his glory. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you that as we look at this word and receive these words of hope, uh, Lord, that, 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 that your Holy Spirit even now is present with us. Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would impress these words that you have inspired and preserved to this day, that they might be for us the words of life. Help us, Lord, to live in light of them that we might bring you glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.